0: Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2, by Nak chang Rinpoche, Chapter 18, Part 2. The changing cubicle put me in mind of Superman's use of the telephone booth, and that seemed suitably ridiculous to put me at my ease about appearing on the streets of London in a voluminous white pleated skirt. I walked up the steps and stood with the others awaiting the opening to the double doors. I hoped no one would speak to me. No one did. If someone had spoken I would not have been taciturn but I was not about to broach conversation uninvited. The doors opened before much time had elapsed and we all entered. Before long the place was full and the air of expectancy was tangible. I noticed Akong Rumshe sitting up in front and another two Lamas, Lama Chime Yonten Rumshe from Essex and Lama Ato Rumshe from Cambridge. There was a short talk to which the three Lamas contributed and then we awaited the arrival of Gyalluwa Karmapa. He arrived, but he did much more than that. What he did, or what he was, was nothing I could describe. I'm not really given to fanciful mystical experiences or thinking that I have had them, but Gyalwa Karmapa was a vast presence in that hall. He simply entered and assumed his throne. The Vajrayana Orchestra commenced its familiar assault on ordinary reality. The long horns, with their menacing combination of jangle, clatter and growling rumble, were the foundation of the sound. The shawms were the high wailing vibrato descant. The drums and cymbals added another layer of bass and treble with a contrasting texture. This was punctuated by the bells and handheld held drums. After some moments, a box was produced and Gyalwa Karmapa took out the Vajra crown that he was to place on his head. The entire ceremony was simply this. He placed the crown on his head and held it in place for... how long? I have no idea. Minutes? Hours? It was timeless. It was both entirely surprising and utterly natural. What could I tell anyone about what happened? I went to London to watch the head of the Karma Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism place a black crown on his head. It took a few minutes or an hour, I cannot be sure. Then he put the crown back in the box. Then it was over. He gave everyone a red cord in token of benediction. Then I caught the train back to Bristol. Well, that's what literally happened. But what actually happened was inexplicable and anomalous in the extreme. There was a great deal of colour. I had some sense that I could even have fallen asleep and dreamt it. The crown was black. It was decorated with symbols. It looked ancient, and the black looked like a hole in reality, or a portal on space. There was some sort of fear evoked on looking at Gyalua Karmapa wearing that hat. But not fear as the word is usually understood. Fear is merely the closest word I can find. Maybe there is the fear one would experience on seeing a lion snarling in the wild, six foot away. Then there is the fear that might exist seeing the same lion through a yard of glass. One feels safe, but fearful at the same time. In this case, however, it was not my life that was at risk but something was at risk that I could not identify. There was no word, there was no clue. Then, at the same time as the fear, there was a great upsurging of elation. There was some sense that Gyalwa Karmapa was a phenomenon like Kyunchen Lingma. He had the same reality, non-reality super reality, surrealistic tangibility that I remembered from my childhood vision of Arrolingma. In that way he was similar to dujam Dujamrimse, a force of nature. I had the wordless sense that I could ask him about Arolingma, and that he would know immediately who she was, just as Dujam had done. I felt extremely light, almost as if I might have floated away or become invisible. Then I knew that Aro was there. I cannot say either that I saw her or simply felt her presence. Her felt presence was visible, but only as if rippling in the air, as if she was an aspect of the light in the room. It was as if she had been emanated by Gyalua Karmapa, but she was so intermittent in her appearance that I could not identify her location. It seemed that I could either see her or define her location, but when I tried to define her location, she vanished into the temperature of the hall. I took the train home. It was simple. Nothing happened other than falling asleep but I woke up before the train arrived at Templemead station in Bristol. I decided to walk to Hotwell's rather than take a taxi. The ladies would have gone to bed by the time I got back. I was not averse to speaking with them but somehow I wanted to end the day as I had started it, in silence. I'd happily tell Penelope. Rebecca and Meryl what my experience had been over breakfast the next morning. I hadn't walked a mile before I wished I'd taken a taxi. My rocket bag was heavy with books and the walk felt a little too arduous after a long day in London. When I finally got back to the house in Hotwells I was tired but content. The ladies had indeed gone to bed that left me a note with a rather delicious ham, cheese and mustard sandwich with thinly sliced onion and tomato. It was just what I needed before retiring for the night. Strangely, I did not fall asleep as soon as I turned out the light. That was not what i had anticipated. I lay in the dark, not feeling quite as exhausted as I'd expected. I've never had trouble sleeping, so it didn't worry me. I simply enjoyed the thought-free state in the dark. Thought-free? Yes, thought-free. Nothing to think. Gyalua Karmapa was not exactly within the realm of conceptuality. So images of the Vajra crown were free to arise and dissolve without my intellectual interference. Then, after what felt like momentary conscious oblivion, I knew that Arrow lingmar was present. Arrolingmar was always present before I became aware of her. She was simply there. But this time she was wearing what appeared to be regal robes. A white shawl with panels of green, red, white and yellow on the sides. It was emblazoned with lotus flowers around the border panels, each in one of the five colours. There were lotus flowers in each of the five colours that bordered each side, and vajras on the blue stripe down the middle of the shawl. She otherwise wore white. She wore a red lotus hat on her head like the one sometimes worn by kyabje Dujan Rinpoche but with white lotus flaps between the outer red lotus flaps and the hat itself. The detail of the shawl was absolutely clear. It was also clear that the pattern would be reversed for a male llama, lotus flowers on the middle blue section and vajras around the edge. The hat for a man would be white with red lotus flaps beneath the red. There was a banquet of detail, and the details continued to unfold and unfurl. Arolingwa displayed many different costumes and many different hats or crowns. I could not tell how the costume changes or when they changed because I was always aware of them fractionally after the change had occurred. It was almost as if no change had occurred. And that there had been the same costume throughout her visionary appearance. Arolingmar emanated yidams who spiralled in and out of her as presences. The yellow aspects of the display dissolved into white, the white dissolved into red, the red dissolved into green, the green dissolved into blue. Finally the blue became black, and vision dissolved into the bedroom. But the bedroom was made of light. It was made of light for an indefinable period of time, after which it regained its normal solidity. The memory of light remained, however, and a determination arose never to forget what I had witnessed. I lay there absolutely still for some time longer before finally falling asleep in gradual increments. The increments dissolved into each other just as the vision of Aro Lingma had dissolved. There was a sudden expansion of light. Then I was in the dream state with awareness that I was dreaming. My intention was immediate. I wanted to be in the Aro Gar. Then I was there. There were the tents that I had seen before. There was the tiger hide tent. I looked round for Aye Kandro and Ashe Kandro. They were not there, so I intended their presence. Suddenly they were there, and I was talking with them. But I was no longer who I thought I was, and I was not speaking a language I understood. I could not comprehend how I could be speaking whilst not understanding what I was saying or hearing in reply. I was aware that the situation was becoming and had already become vague and dreamlike. No sooner was I cognizant of the usual texture of dreaming than I woke up. The room was brilliant with light, but it was the light of the sun shining full onto me where I lay. My immediate thought on waking was that what I had experienced was not terma but something like a reflection of terma seen in a mirror or hall of mirrors. I knew it wasn't terma because there was nothing cohesive about it. A terma would be complete and more important there would be no doubt about what it was. Dujyum had told me that a time would come when I would discover Aro Lingma's terma, but when that might occur was not yet evident. Maybe this was a precursor to that discovery. I made a record of every detail in order that I could relate it to Kyabje Dujyum as he was the only one who would know what it meant or portended. It was important, but that was all. Many things can be or seem important but they often mean very little. I willed myself not to be too excited about it or build anything on it. I'd annotated it and that was all that was required. After my customary ablutions I went down to help with making breakfast, but it had already been made. As soon as they saw me, the ladies chorused, tell us all about it then. None of it was easily communicable. I said nothing of the vision of Lingmar. I simply told them about the Vajra crown ceremony in London. The ladies really seemed to grasp something from what I said, but later Debt understood nothing at all. Just as long as you enjoyed yourself and you don't expect me to join you on one of these Mad Hatter events, I don't mind. Just don't expect me to want to hear about it. That's a deal, Debt, I smiled. I have no expectations, great or otherwise. Oh, very droll. Am I to call you Pip now? As in Pipistrel? Yes, why not? I do bat for England, after all, I grinned, but Det shook her head as if wearied. She enjoyed banter, badinage and repartee, but seemed to resent it at the unlikeliest of times. Or well, maybe the times were not unlikely. Maybe they were the occasions on which she felt caught out. Maybe she recognised that she had been dismissive of me and my riposte had been demonstrated that it did not matter to me. I never spoke of the Vajra crown to her again. It no longer mattered, but it was consequential that it no longer mattered. I wish that I'd not allowed debt to dissuade me from ending the relationship. It seemed that whenever she sensed she'd overstepped the mark with me, that she'd spin a 180 degrees and become the warm and charming lady she'd initially been. It just didn't last and I was too naive to understand I was being manipulated on the basis that I was obviously incapable of responding unaffectionately to affection. One of the bizarre aspects of my life was the juxtaposition of visionary experience and responding to Det's Pip jest with, as in Pipistrel, yes, why not? I do bat for England after all was a bizarre juxtaposition, but perhaps not as bizarre as the fact that it didn't seem bizarre. It was simply the texture of my life. I had nothing with which I could compare it. I had no peer group. I could not ask another English incarnation about what was normal. I could certainly ask Dudjam but when I spoke with Dudjam I was complete within his world. My English world was always too distant. It was distant with any elder Tibetan. In this respect, I was even distant with Tibetans of my own age. Considering this sometimes made me feel utterly lonely. But fortunately, I was able to avoid indulging in loneliness. There were many lonely people in the world other than Eleanor Rigby. There was Queen Elizabeth. There were people like John Lennon, Bob Dylan and other people who were, of necessity, alone in crowds. I was not alone in being alone. Maybe everyone was alone to some degree. Derek asked me about the Vajra crown ceremony as I'd had to request a day away from art school and he was genuinely curious. Marvellous, simply marvellous for something so remote to be available in London. It must have been like time travelling. Yes, that expresses it well, I replied. I wasn't even aware that it was the Friends Meeting House in Euston. That seemed to vanish and all I saw was Gyalwa Karmapa. I think the Vajrayana Orchestra absorbed the setting in some way. It didn't seem possible to observe the event as I'd usually observe a performance. It was something like theatre, but without the willing suspension of disbelief. It was more like the suspension of the observer. I just vanished and all that was left was the act of looking. I see that you are going to have to make another trip to the East at some point, Derek grinned. I answered in the affirmative and returned to the illustration studio. It struck me that debt had her own particular problem or difficulty with religious experience. She seemed to feel obliged to mock it, that she also mocked me was no massive inconvenience but it meant that we had no real relationship the vajra crown ceremony was evidently something i could discuss with the ladies in hotwells and also with derrick crow the subject was therefore not as bizarre as debt deemed it to be and nor was i i was fairly ordinary in many ways as had been pointed out to be by Kate in Liverpool. My life was going to be a strange mixture of worlds, the world of art school and the Tibetan world. Both were essentially art, but they seemed worlds apart to debt. Could I bring these two worlds together? There was tanker painting, of course, but that was not really art as I'd studied it. Tanka painting was certainly a field I'd explore, but it didn't cross the divide between art school and Vajrayana. I didn't want to become one of those esoteric types who painted their own tarot decks or whatever. I didn't want to create western tankas, or weave Vajrayana symbolism into my paintings that seemed a waste of time and an insult to both traditions. It also seemed the surest route to manufacturing clichés and bizarre art. It occurred to me that there was something essential that would translate itself of itself if I could only discover what made it all function. There was something about the nature of reality that would make sense of itself almost as my experience of Gyalwa Karmapa had made sense of itself. That timeless sensation of experiencing Gyalwa Karmapa must surely be accessible in roots and branches, in rivers and streams, in clouds, in frost and snow. It must be accessible in everything.